0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George.
1: Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, today you get to hear a lecture by a great friend of mine, Dr. Scott Manich, Dr. Manich is professor of church history at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and he is also the associate general editor of the Reformation Commentary on Scripture. In connection with that project that involves 28 volumes of Reformation Comment from all over the 16th century, I work very closely with Dr. Manich. I've come to know him and respect him as a scholar, as a friend, and as a very deeply spiritual person. You're going to sense this, I think, by the opening prayer he gives at the very beginning of this lecture. Uh, Among his important works, uh, he's a scholar of Theodore Beza. He's also the author of Calvin's Company of Pastors, Pastoral Care and the Emerging Reformed Church, published by Oxford University Press. He's talking here about the view of ministry and pastoral life in particular, especially in Calvin's Geneva. The importance of discipline is one of the emphases he's going to make. Well, you're going to like this lecture if you're a pastor, Pastor, I think you're going to learn a lot from it. I did. It's called the Ministry of Pastoral Care. Let's listen to Dr. Scott Manich. This was given here at Beeson in 2010 as a part of our annual Reformation Heritage Lectures.
0: Well, I have had a wonderful week with you, and I thank you for your hospitality. So many of you have shown such kindness to me in a variety of ways, faculty, staff, students. So thank you for your kindness to me. The Ministry of Pastoral Care. Early Protestants recognized the importance of the visual arts to dismantle traditional religious belief and communicate their message of spiritual renewal and salvation. In a world where barely one in ten Europeans was able to read the printed page, it was crucial that the evangelical message be embodied, communicated in visible symbols that even the roughest of peasants might understand. Consequently, Protestant artists like Lucas Cranach, Albrecht Dürer, and Hans Holbein experimented with a variety of visual media, paintings, woodcut broadsheets, title pages, illustrated pamphlets, even medallions, in an effort to place before the eyes of men and women the central concerns of the reformers. Now, to be sure, artistic works created by Protestants served as a potent form of propaganda that reinforced stereotypes, demonized opponents, and polarized the symbolic universe between good and evil. As Robert Scribner once noted, the visual arts were better at lampooning medieval religion than articulating the central convictions of the evangelical faith. But even so, Protestant art served as a clarion call to arms, a vision of what the church could be, of what the church ought to be. In many of their paintings and woodcuts, Reformation artists presented a visual image of the nature of Christian leadership and the qualities of a faithful faithful Christian pastor. Lucas Chronic the Younger's Weinberg altarpiece, which is displayed on the screen, is a good example of this. His painting draws on the prophetic tradition from the Old Testament that compared Israel or Judah to a vineyard thinking here particularly of Jeremiah chapter 12. In the foreground of this painting are presented two groups of people. On the right, dressed in humble attire, we see Jesus and his disciples. They face, on the left, a mob of Catholic religious personnel, the pope, cardinals, bishops, priests, monks, nuns, outfitted in their fine regalia and sporting the accoutrements of their religious offices. Behind them is a vineyard spread out over a hillside. The vineyard on the right is beautiful and flourishing. It is well cared for by Protestant pastors like Luther and Melanchthon, who carefully cultivate the vineyard, watering, pruning, and harvesting the grapes. They are good vine dressers, good pastors. In fact, Luther is pictured raking up trash including a papal bull of his excommunication in order to burn it. The condition of the vineyard on the left side of the hill is altogether different. Here, the vineyard is almost completely ruined. The priests and monks who tend the vineyard are entirely negligent, even malicious. A cardinal and several monks are pictured chopping vines with their axes. Another monk is getting drunk on a jug of wine. Still others pour rocks down the well. The message of Cronach's painting is powerful and clear. Instead of nurturing and caring for the vineyard of the Lord, the church, Catholic bishops, priests, and monks have all but destroyed it. They are wicked pastors of Christ's church, he communicates. The Lutheran ministers, by contrast, have restored the vineyard to faith, to fruitfulness and verdant beauty. They are depicted as faithful pastors over Christ's church. What is not clear from Kronach's painting, however, is what constitutes faithful pastoral care. What activities and priorities are involved in caring for the people of God? How are Christians nurtured so that they grow in godliness and fruitfulness? What ministries does the Holy Spirit use to render God's Church, the vineyard of the Lord, radiant in holiness and righteousness? My lecture this morning addresses these questions. As we shall see, Protestant reformers like Luther, Martin Bucer, John Calvin, and Theodore Beza were very much concerned about the nature of day-to-day pastoral work. In the sermons that they preached, in the books that they wrote, in the institutions that they created, the Magisterial Reformers championed a program of pastoral ministry intended to care for God's people and guide them towards spiritual health and godliness. In the first two sections of my lecture, I will describe the model of pastoral care practiced in late medieval Catholicism and contrast it with the vision of pastoral oversight and ministry adopted by the Protestant Reformers. In the final and longest section of my lecture, I will examine the practice of church discipline in Calvin's Geneva, showing ways in which it functioned as an important ministry of pastoral care. So part one Reinventing Pastoral Care The medieval Catholic understanding of pastoral care was closely tied to the priest's role in the sacrament of penance. At the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, the Western Church began to require all Christians to confess their sins to a priest at least once a year, normally at Easter time. Through the sacrament of penance, it was believed, sinners who had shipwrecked their souls through mortal sin were restored to a state of grace by Christ's forgiveness received through the priest's absolution. In the sacrament of penance, the parish priest served as a physician of the soul as he probed into the spiritual life of his people, pronounced absolution, and prescribed the necessary medicine or satisfactions to promote spiritual healing. By the late Middle Ages, the priest's role as a confessor and soul physician informed and shaped most of the ministries of the local parish. Mendicant preaching, various rituals, blessings, and prayers all served as prologues to the sacrament of penance. At the same time, Many of the most important expressions of late medieval spirituality, such as pilgrimages, processions, and even indulgences, were penitential exercises performed in response to confession. During the century before the Reformation, dozens upon dozens of confessor manuals and penitential booklets appeared to guide priests in their work as spiritual physicians, instructing them as to the nature and variety of sins recommending strategies to elicit a complete confession, and offering guidelines for applying the appropriate satisfactions, or medicine, for sin. Martin Luther fundamentally rejected this whole complex of medieval penance. Already in 1517, in his 95 Theses, Luther expressed doubts as to the biblical basis for the Catholic tradition of penance. Thesis number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of penitence. Thesis number two, the word repent cannot be properly understood as referring to the sacrament of penance. That is, confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. Three years later, in his treatise, The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, Luther attacked the Catholic sacrament of penance even more fiercely, arguing that it was not only unbiblical, but spiritually destructive. Catholic penance detracted from the power of Christ's forgiveness, he said. It destroyed Christian assurance. It undermined Christian faith. It reinforced the tyranny of the Catholic clergy. It promoted works righteousness. And in the end, it drove Christians to despair. By these enormities, Luther wrote, the Romanists have brought the world into such disorder that men think they can propitiate God for their sins by means of their works whereas he is propitiated only by faith in the contrite heart. From Luther's perspective, in their role as confessors, Catholic priests were not functioning as pastors or physicians at all, but rather cruel taskmasters who tormented the consciences of God's people. And so, Luther and later Protestant reformers rejected the Catholic Sacrament of Penance, But this created a major problem. With mandatory confession eliminated, how were Protestant clergymen now to exercise pastoral care within their spiritual communities? How were evangelical pastors to learn about the inner struggles and needs of their people so that they might warn sinners, comfort the repentant, and console those tempted and troubled? How could Reformed churches formalize a system of pastoral supervision that took private sin seriously and encouraged public righteousness, yet avoided religious legalism? These questions were of enormous concern to Protestant leaders in the early decades of the Reformation. It became one of their top priorities to formulate a theology of pastoral care and create church ministries that address the spiritual needs of individual Christians within their congregations. One of the most influential theologies of pastoral care written during the Reformation came from the pen of the Strasbourg reformer Martin Butzer. His book, entitled Concerning the True Care of Souls, 1538, defined the role of the Christian pastor and describe ways that pastors should care for the souls of their flock. According to Bootser, Jesus Christ is the one true ruler and shepherd of his church. In the present age, Christ exercises his rule as shepherd or pastor through Christian ministers whom he appoints to care for the souls of his spiritual lambs. These pastors must be people of solid reputation and good example. They faithfully exercise their charge under Christ when they proclaim to their people the whole word of God, which includes, he says, teaching, exhorting, warning, disciplining, comforting, pardoning, and reconciling them to the Lord. Bootser goes on to list five main duties involved in biblical soul care. And I'm going to quote him at length. First, Pastors lead to Christ and our Lord and into his communion those who are still estranged from him, whether through carnal excess or false worship. In other words, evangelism. Two, Pastors restore those who had once been brought to Christ and into his church and have been drawn away again through the affairs of the flesh or false doctrine. Third, Pastors assist in the true reformation of those who, while remaining in the church of Christ, have grievously fallen and sinned. Discipline. Fourth, Pastors reestablish in true Christian strength and health those who, while persevering in the fellowship of Christ and not doing anything grossly wrong, have become somewhat feeble and sick in the Christian life. A physician. Fifthly, pastors protect from all offense and falling away and continually encourage in all good things those who stay with the flock And remain within Christ's sheep pen. Clearly, for Bootser, pastoral care involved not only preaching to the Christian congregation, but a proactive ministry of seeking out the lost, encouraging the weak and the discouraged, and reconciling sinners to the church. Part two Protestant institutions of pastoral care. The Protestant Reformers created a number of different ministries and institutions to provide spiritual care for the people in their congregations. Certainly, the most important ministry of pastoral care was the Protestant sermon. We must never forget that. When we preach, we are doing the work of pastoral care. As we noted yesterday reformers like Luther and Calvin insisted that Jesus Christ governed his church and nourished and sustained his people through the preaching ministry of the local church. Faithful preaching was an essential part of soul care. But studying the biblical text and preaching biblical sermons was not enough. For the magisterial reformers, as for Bootser, The ministry of the word also required that pastors apply God's word to the pressing needs of individual people, people who were trapped in sin, people who were despairing and in doubt, people who were sick or ignorant or afraid. Calvin put it this way, the office of a true and faithful minister is not only publicly to teach the people over whom he is ordained pastor, but as much as possible, to admonish, exhort, rebuke, and console each person in particular. Calvin's successor in Geneva, Theodore Beza, also stressed the need for ministers to do more than study and preach. Again, ministers are not simply talking heads. He writes, It is a very holy and necessary desire for a preacher to be diligent and careful in study so that he has something to feed his sheep. But if he throws himself so much into it that, while he is studying, Satan devours one of his sheep, then he cannot be called a true pastor. A true pastor not only attends to the reading of Scripture, but also guards his flock So what kinds of ministries and institutions did Protestants establish to provide spiritual care for God's people? A partial answer would include general and private confession, visitations, church discipline, catechesis, confirmation, instruction in prayer, celebration of the sacraments, and personal correspondence. Because of the limitations of time, I will say a few words about only three of these ministries. Confession, Visitation, and thirdly, Church Discipline. The Ministry of Confession. Although the Reformers rejected Catholic, the Catholic sacrament of penance, they in no way denied the value of formal rites of confession and absolution as long as they were not mandatory and as long as they offered real consolation to sinners. In most churches, Lutheran and Reformed alike, a general confession of sin was added to the church liturgy and became part of the rhythm of pastoral worship and spirituality. In so many of our evangelical churches today, there is no public confession of sin and no public absolution, declaration of Christ's forgiveness of sinners. And that, friends, is a real loss. In the Lutheran world, private confession to a minister continued to be practiced, although, again, it was always voluntary. Here, the example of Luther was especially important. For most of his adult life, Luther confessed his private sins on a regular basis, to his pastor and friend Johann Bugenhagen. Private confession, quote, is a singular medicine for afflicted consciences, Luther once claimed. Over time, voluntary confession to a pastor became regularized in many Lutheran churches. Before taking the Lord's Supper, Lutheran believers in territories like Nuremberg and Brandenburg were required to meet with their pastor for spiritual examination and instruction and to confess any besetting sins that tormented their consciences. In such instances, however, the pastors did not have the power to absolve sins. They simply declared to the sinner the forgiveness, mercy, and consolation of Christ. And again, private confession was always voluntary. Secondly, the ministry of visitation. Most Protestant churches in the 16th century prescribed at least some form of pastoral visitation. In our lecture yesterday, we described the general visitations of the countryside parishes conducted by Luther and his colleagues in 1526 and then again in 1528 and 1529. In the decades that followed, the office of visitor, became institutionalized as regional superintendents conducted regular visits of Lutheran congregations to evaluate the quality of pastoral work and the moral climate of each parish. The program of visitation that Calvin established in the Church of Geneva was even more extensive. The pastors were required by city statute to visit people who had been ill for more than three days so that they might impart spiritual consolation and counsel. Note that it was illegal, if you were a member of a household, it was illegal for you to allow a member of your household to be ill for three days without summoning a pastor to provide comfort and consolation and spiritual guidance. In a similar fashion, the ministers conducted periodic visits to the city's prisons to monitor the treatment of prisoners and exhort them to spiritual reformation. But most importantly, beginning in 1550, Calvin and Geneva's ministers instituted the practice of annual household visitations. Every year, shortly before Easter, Geneva's eight pastors and 12 lay elders visited all of the households in the city. The population of Geneva in the late 16th century ranged from around 12,000 people to 20,000 people. This was an enormous endeavor. During these visits, they examined each member of the household on their knowledge of the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, and the Ten Commandments. On many occasions, these visitations also allowed them to intervene in domestic disputes, confront blatant sinful behavior, and provide pastoral care and guidance. In cases where townsfolk were found to be notorious sinners or were completely ignorant of the Christian gospel, the visitors would refer them to Geneva's consistory for further spiritual intervention and instruction. The third institution I want to treat is just that, the ministry of church discipline through consistory. Protestant leaders like Luther, Calvin, Buzzer, and Beza all agreed that one of the pastor's chief responsibilities was to supervise the moral behavior of the spiritual community and, when necessary, confront people guilty of serious moral failure. But it was the Reformed churches that gave special prominence to moral discipline and created institutions to oversee public righteousness and promote personal sanctification. In Geneva... Calvin established the consistory in 1541, a morals tribunal made up of city ministers and 12 lay elders. So it was an institution that included the city's ministers and also 12 lay leaders. They were responsible for examining sinners and applying the medicine of church discipline so as to achieve repentance and restoration. Geneva's consistory was soon duplicated elsewhere in Reformed Europe, in Scotland, in the Netherlands, in northern Germany, in the city of Emden, in Transylvania, and in southern France. Reformed consistories usually had no authority to impose corporal punishment. Rather, they were church courts that examined notorious sinners, offered spiritual advice, and administered strong admonitions and warnings. In the most serious of cases, consistories suspended or excommunicated sinners from the Lord's Supper, usually for a limited term of one or two communion cycles. Calvin and his Reformed colleagues believed that church discipline was vital for the spiritual health of the church. Calvin made this clear in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. Here I quote, As the saving doctrine of Christ is the soul of the church, so does discipline serve as its sinews, through which the members of the body hold together, each in its own place. Consequently, all who desire to remove discipline or to hinder its restoration are surely contributing to the ultimate dissolution of the church. It was that important for Calvin. Calvin and Reformed Christians derived their doctrine of church discipline in large part from the biblical concept of the power of the keys, described in Matthew 16 and again in Matthew 18, believing that Christ had granted to his church the authority to proclaim God's sentence of condemnation and forgiveness to sinners. The spiritual authority to bind and loose was exercised in a general way, Calvin believed, every time a minister preached the gospel in their sermons, announcing God's righteous judgment upon the wicked and the promise of salvation for those who turn to Christ in repentance and faith. The power of the keys was employed more particularly when pastors and lay elders conducted annual household visitations to examine the character and doctrine of church members or when they admonished sinners in private conferences. And finally... Calvin believed that the ministers and elders employed the power of the keys through the ministry of the consistory as they confronted people guilty of serious moral failure. As they confronted people guilty of of serious moral failure. The purpose of church discipline was thus threefold. It helped preserve the purity of Christ's church. It protected Christians from the bad influence of notorious sinners. And it shamed the wicked thereby hastening their repentance and restoration to the Christian community. Calvin and his successor Theodore Beza insisted that church discipline was a form of pastoral care and should be practiced with moderation and in a spirit of gentleness. The primary goal, after all, after all was to rescue, not humiliate the sinner. Beza made this point in one of his sermons. The pastor He says, is like a physician of the soul who must, quote, not only discern the illness, but also the situation and disposition of the patient, looking for the best medicine to prescribe, preaching the law to the hardened, and the gospel of grace to those who are despairing. In brief, let us always condemn the sin, but try to save the sinner. So let us summarize. Early Protestant leaders were vitally interested in pastoral care. In place of the sacrament of penance, they championed a variety of other pastoral activities to address the spiritual needs of their people, and these included, as we've seen, preaching, private and general confession, visitation, and moral discipline. And now part three, which is a little bit longer, church discipline as pastoral care. It may seem counterintuitive to think of church discipline as a form of pastoral care. Several decades ago, social historians who studied Reformed discipline in Europe often portrayed it in negative terms. Reformed consistories, they argued, were institutions of social control in which Calvinist clergymen imposed their doctrine and harsh moral standards on a largely resistant population. Recent scholarship, however, has presented a very different picture of Calvinist discipline, highlighting the fashion in which Reformed consistories helped to establish the structure of Calvinist marriage, preserved the sacred unity of the church, and protected the prevailing moral norms of the community. Even as they attempted to regulate public morality, consistories also concerned themselves with educating the ignorant, defending the weak, and mediating interpersonal conflicts. As historian Robert Kingdon has rightly observed regarding John Calvin's consistory in Geneva, discipline to these early Genevans meant more than social control. It also meant social help. Over the last decade, I have spent several thousand hours reading the registers of Geneva's consistory for the years 1541 to 1609. They're written in a very difficult script and uh, one can read them in the City Archive of Geneva. In addition to identifying different types of moral offenses and quantifying total numbers of excommunications each year, I've remained attentive to the underlying pastoral concerns expressed through the consistory's discipline. In the remainder of my lecture, I will report some of my general findings and demonstrate the ways in which moral discipline served as a form of pastoral care in 16th and early 17th century Geneva. How many people were suspended from the Lord's Supper each year in Reformed Geneva? The simple answer, a lot. Between 1542 and 1609, I have identified more than 9,000 excommunications in the Genevan Church, and this total does not include data from 20 years for which consistory registers are no longer extant. As you can see from the graph in front of you, beginning with only a couple dozen annual excommunications during the first years of the consistory's existence, the frequency of suspensions increased rapidly after 1555, reaching an apex in 1568 when more than 680 people were barred from the Lord's Supper. Following this peak, the number of annual excommunications fell sharply in the early 1570s before leveling off for the next 40 years when suspensions ranged from between 100 per year and 200 per year. And remember, the population of Geneva fluctuates between 12,000 and 20,000 during this period. Despite fluctuations year to year, The overall number of suspensions in 16th and early 17th century Geneva is staggering, far exceeding the rate of excommunications practiced in Reformed churches in other parts of Europe during the period. And I don't have time to go into why. I have some some suspicions, uh, but I'd be happy to discuss that after the lecture if you'd like. For what types of sins were people suspended from the Lord's Supper? I hope you can see the chart. You may not be able to, but I'll try to to, uh, highlight some of the main points. As the chart on the screen indicates, around one quarter of all excommunications were for disputes and quarrels, whether between husbands and wives, parents and children, or neighbors. The second most common reason for suspension was fornication. About 12% of excommunications were for adultery, fornication, Um, followed by scandals, blasphemy, lying and slander, Catholic behavior, and indecent dancing and singing. So those of you who like to dance, be careful. Time only allows me to make some very general comments about this data. First, note that men were suspended far more frequently than women on a scale of around 2 to 1. Second, my data indicate that the vast majority of suspensions were for sinful behavior rather than for for false doctrine. Less than 1% of all excommunications were for heresy or Anabaptist belief. The consistory functioned primarily as a morals court rather than a tribunal judging doctrine. It should be noted as well that the overwhelming majority of suspensions during this period were minor excommunications, and thus imposed for a limited time, of, uh, limited time period, usually six months to a year, and then the person would be restored to the church. Only a handful of the consistory suspensions were major excommunications, which entailed the long-term exclusion of the sinner from the spiritual community. The roll call of sinners and miscreants who were suspended by Geneva's consistory makes for colorful and often tragic reading. It includes adulterers and Anabaptists, blasphemers and and wife-beaters, drunkards and gluttons, business cheats, and petty thieves. People were suspended for neglecting their children, visiting fortune tellers, praying the rosary, missing sermons, urinating in church, and singing profane songs. Some of the disciplinary cases are particularly memorable, even bizarre. Antoine Bonnard, for example, was ex- excommunicated for kneeling down and worshiping the sun in the city marketplace. A peasant boy named Jean Sado was banned from the table for the cruel and barbaric act, believe it or not, of extracting the eyeball of an unruly cow and presenting the bloodied organ to his minister. Another one of my favorites is a group of hooligans who decided to play a trick on uh, a friend who had just gotten married. And they, attended, they attached a bell to the bed, uh, the marriage bed, and strung the rope out the window down to the street below. And so when the happy couple jumped into bed on their wedding night, the bell began to ring. Uh, those young men were suspended as well. On some occasions, the consistory's discipline appears heavy-handed, harsh, and punitive at least to modern Western sensibilities. We may perhaps chuckle at the story of Claude Gritfa, who was suspended from the Lord's Supper for naming his dog Calvin. But it is hard not to be appalled in other cases, as when a young woman named Claudine Fichet was excommunicated in 1562 for having attempted suicide by throwing herself into the Rhone River following her mother's death. Church discipline in Calvinist Geneva could be very strong spiritual medicine indeed. Moreover, the large number of suspensions that we have documented in the Geneva Church, more than 9,000 in my 50-year sample, raises questions about the pastoral wisdom and spiritual benefits of this model of church discipline. But numbers and random anecdotes do not tell the whole story. The Consistory Minutes also portray Geneva's ministers as conscientious pastors concerned to protect their spiritual flock in a variety of important ways. This commitment to pastoral care runs as a common thread through the Consistory's work during Calvin's lifetime and in the generation that followed. I will highlight four important aspects of the Consistory's pastoral role as expressed through church discipline. First, concern for people and their problems. One is impressed by the enormous effort expended by the ministers and elders of Geneva to elicit confession and bring about repentance and spiritual restoration. Hour after hour, week by week, consistory members inquired into the most intimate, the most painful, the most destructive dimensions of their congregants' lives. The ministers and elders met with people face to face. They addressed them by name. They listened at length to their grievances. It was not uncommon for the consistory to meet with a defendant two, three, or four times before applying the medicine of church discipline that fit the individual circumstance. We as moderns may well shudder at the severity with which they handled some of the offenders who appeared before them. But Geneva's pastors and elders cannot be accused of being apathetic to the spiritual needs of their flock, nor of being naively disengaged from the pervasive injustice, misery, and sin that surrounded them. Secondly, a concern for heart transformation. The consistory in Calvinist Geneva was not only committed to enforcing right behavior— It was also concerned with applying the medicine of discipline that would help change the inward attitude of the heart. The consistory regularly urged defendants to reflect on their consciences, to seek a clean heart, or to feel and understand their fault. For those who had been suspended, admission of guilt and heartfelt repentance were required before they could be restored to the Lord's table. Thus, Rolette Compagnie was sent away still under the ban because she continued to harbor hatred for a neighbor who had wronged her. She was exhorted to return once she had, quote, a better disposition of the heart. When the consistory rebuked a man and woman guilty of fornication in 1548, one of the ministers explained the soul's journey from sin to spiritual health in these terms. Sinners must... Repent, recognize their faults, and henceforth walk in newness of life, demonstrating signs of repentance with the heart touched by the Holy Spirit so as to weep and receive the grace of God. Now certainly repentance and spiritual renewal were the work of God. Only the Lord could change the attitude of the heart. Nevertheless, the ministers believed that church discipline was an important instrument that God used to turn sinners back to Christian obedience and righteousness. From this perspective, then, to ignore wicked behavior or wrong belief was not a form of humane indulgence, but rather a gross act of ministerial malpractice and a betrayal of the divine call to shepherd the flock of God that is under your care. Excommunication warned a sinner of his or her spiritual peril and also prevented him from profaning the Holy Sacrament, thereby eating and drinking judgment upon himself, as 1 Corinthians 11.29 puts it. Less rigorous forms of church discipline, including moral counsel, remonstrance, and rebuke, were also seen as a form of pastoral care. And we need to remember the consistory oftentimes did not suspend someone but provided moral counsel or admonition. Accordingly, the ministers and consistory were generous in offering words of advice and admonition. When a carter of wool named Bastien Boucher was called before consistory for sleeping in the same bed with his adult daughter and grandson, the ministers felt duty-bound both to reprove this scandalous behavior and at the same time deliver an important moral lesson. Even if Boucher was poor and cold, decency must always take precedence over necessity. Third, a concern for the poor and vulnerable. The ministers and elders repeatedly intervened on behalf of the most vulnerable members in Geneva society. They rebuked mothers who refused to nourish weak newborns, and fathers who mercilessly beat their children. They chastised Genevans who refused to care for elderly parents and grandparents. They intervened on behalf of abandoned children, despised refugees, poor laborers, mistreated prisoners, and social misfits. In 1589, for example, the consistory learned that a widow named Jeanne de Clarenne was guilty of horrific treatment of her 10-year-old niece. She regularly burned her head with live coals, kicked her in the stomach, beat her to the point of blood, and forced her niece to beg throughout the village. The minister suspended the woman, advised the magistrates of the situation, and then placed the girl in the city hospital at the expense of her aunt. The consistory also worked to root out social and economic injustice. They confronted landlords for cheating or threatening poor tenants. They warned citizens about incompetent surgeons and scolded physicians who demanded excessive fees from the sick and diseased. They disciplined merchants who created monopolies or violated city ordinances by inflating the price of basic commodities such as wood, coal, meat, and bread. They chastised masters for withholding servants' wages or for cruel treatment. Of their apprentices. The consistory's campaign to protect the weak and the vulnerable was especially important during the visitation of the plague, when death, fear, and suspicions threatened to unravel family loyalties and undermine social harmony. During the plague years of 1568 to 1572, the ministers and elders intervened in nearly a dozen cases in which plague victims were assaulted or abandoned by terrified family members and neighbors. The account of the bourgeois family in the village of Malval serves as a shocking example. In September 1571, a daughter of the family contracted the plague while in the last days of her pregnancy. Fearing infection, the young woman's mother, brother, and sister abandoned her. Uh, The account doesn't tell us where her husband was. He may have been off at war. He may have been dead. Even when the pains of labor overcame the sick woman, neither family members nor neighbors responded to her desperate cries for help. In the end, she delivered her baby alone, all the while screaming for water and assistance. The infant, and it appears the mother, died three hours later. The woman's family, listening to the entire ordeal outside the home, had already dug a grave for mother and child. The consistory's response to this tragedy was more than perfunctory. In addition to suspending family members for their inhumanity, the minister sent a delegation to the city magistrates demanding that, quote, sick villagers should be cared for either by people from the city or from their own village so that no one would suffer a similar thing ever again. And fourth, concern for conflict resolution. The Geneva consistory in the 16th century also provided a mechanism to reconcile estranged spouses and pacify arguments between family members and neighbors. In this way, as Robert Kingdon has observed, The consistory functioned as a kind of compulsory counseling service. Those are his words. The ministers and elders mediated hundreds of disputes each year, some that endangered life or marriage, others that disrupted the peace of the household and the community. In the consistory's chambers, feuding parties aired their grievances, argued with one another, and sometimes reconciled. The consistory employed moral persuasion, bald threats, Pastoral advice and suspensions in an effort to stem destructive behavior, end violence, and foster reconciliation. Jacques Pop was ordered to stop tormenting his wife and to love her and support her as a good Christian ought to do. A poor pinmaker named Guillaume Badolet was told to stop drinking, work at his craft, and provide food and clothing for his eight children. The consistory threatened to suspend Barthélemy Varenne and Jean Epley from the Lord's Supper if they did not cease arguing with one another and calling each other names. Many times, moral persuasion and threats were not enough, however. In 1561, a wife-beater named Jean Predere was summoned to consistory for vicious batteries against his wife. A half-dozen witnesses described a gruesome pattern of behavior, In previous attacks, Prader had showered insults upon his poor wife, pinched her thighs with hot tongs, hit her in the stomach and face, and tried to strangle her. Now he had struck her in the head with a board and knocked her unconscious. His poor wife, who was judged to be an honorable and virtuous woman, was still in bed recovering from a cracked skull and other injuries. Hearing this report, the ministers and elders excommunicated Prader and commanded him never again to touch or mistreat his wife. He was then sent to the city magistrates with recommendations that he receive additional corporal punishments. As should now be clear, the consistory occupied a prominent place in Geneva's religious life during the early modern period. Through this ministry of moral supervision and discipline, the ministers and elders were intimately involved in the lives of their parishioners, attentive to the complexities and difficulties of broken relationships, bad decisions, wrong belief, and sinful behavior. For Calvin and the other ministers of Geneva, church discipline in its various forms served as spiritual medicine prescribed by God to bring healing to the human heart, making possible repentance reconciliation, and spiritual growth. Moreover, church discipline was employed by the consistory to protect the weakest members of Geneva society, enforcing basic norms of justice and humanity. Consistory members served as helpers for the poor, tutors for the unlearned, advocates for the weak, mediators for the estranged, and defenders of the exploited and the abused. Moral discipline was a crucial dimension of pastoral care in Reformed Geneva. By way of conclusion, Calvin's consistory was only one of a number of different institutions and ministries established by Protestant leaders to provide pastoral care for the people entrusted to them. Having rejected the Catholic sacrament of penance, the Reformers championed instead an intensive program of soul care that was attentive to their people's needs for repentance, assurance, consolation, and daily instruction. For Reformers like Luther, Calvin, Beza, and Butzer, the ministry of soul care was not distinct from the ministry of the Word. It was one important expression of the ministry of the Word. As pastors heard confessions, confronted sinners, comforted the sick, defended the weak, and instructed the ignorant, they did so by means of God's powerful word. And perhaps there's an important lesson here for us in 2010. As we serve Christ in a world of mega-churches and multi-million dollar ministries, as we pastor congregations full of people who listen to James McDonald and Nancy Leigh DeMoss on the radio, Who watch Beth Moore and Tim Keller on video and access the sermons of John Piper and Mark Driscoll on web podcasts, we might well ask what place is there for an ordinary pastor with ordinary gifts? The Protestant reformers give us a ready answer the vineyard of the Lord needs pruning, it needs watering, it needs care. God continues to raise up men and women to be vine dressers, pastors, who know the names of their people, who will confront them lovingly when they are apathetic and unrepentant, who will invest a lifetime in knowing them and loving them and teaching them God's word, and who finally will stand at their bedsides and comfort them as they prepare to die. And all of this done through the Word of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the privilege, this is the calling of a pastor. Let me conclude with a beautiful statement and a prayer that is found at the end of one of Theodore Baez's final sermons, a sermon he preached when he was over 70 years old. We are able to say, by the grace of God, he notes, that we have preached and continue to preach the pure truth contained in God's holy word. But alas, at what price? Where is our zeal, our care, and our diligence as pastors? O Lord, support us, therefore, by your infinite goodness. Preserve in us a good and right conscience. Fill us with zeal for your glory increase in us the knowledge the wisdom the love and the endurance required for such a calling in some be pleased to bless our modest efforts may it be so for our good and Christ's glory amen